Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Lloyd Lobo, who's the co-founder of fintech platform Boast.ai uh, and he's also the founder of Traction. Um, he's written a, a book called The from grassroots to greatness, 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth, which covers tactical advice from companies such as Apple, Harley-Davidson, Nike, CrossFit, and others. Uh, welcome to the show, Lord. Hey, thanks for hosting me, Rohit. Uh, great pleasure to be here. Excited to be on. Awesome. So you know, uh, you know, before uh, we we uh, you know uh, on on the call, we we discussed about your journey, how you were a Gulf War refugee, and you you know spent your time in India. Um, you got a very fascinating uh, journey, uh, and you you know built your way into startups. Just wanted to understand about your experience, where you lived in Kuwait, and you were a uh, you moved to US. What was the entire experience about for you? Definitely. So, you know, what's interesting is my parents are from India. So one, you know, a lot of people um, think I'm like Middle Eastern or Mexican, but I speak like Hindi very fluently, Indian yeah. at heart. My parents are both from India. Right. My dad was a farmer in Mangalore. My mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai. They weren't very educated. So their only option back in the day in the 70s was to go to the Middle East where the currency was more powerful than than India, right? And they could send right. some money home. The aim was one day we'll leave Kuwait because you can't be a citizen of Kuwait right. as an expat. One day we'll leave Kuwait, retire with a lot of money and go in our hometown. And so I was born in Kuwait. My parents couldn't afford to take us on vacations to expensive places, Europe, et cetera. And dad would get like free tickets once a year to India because that's the work policy here in the Middle East. And so we would go to India in the summers. And my childhood summers were actually spent mostly in the slums of Mumbai, where my mom had nine siblings and parents and, uh, you know, little house where I'd, I guess it was cement blocks with an aluminum roof, no toilet in the house. But my fondest memories as a child were in that house because everything was communal. If you cook food a little extra, you're sharing it with neighbors. They had these little gullies and watching TV was communal. My grandparents' house had a TV because my mom was in Kuwait and could afford to send one, but the next 10 places didn't have TV. So people were just like watching from the railings in. And even going to the bathroom was communal, right? You're standing in line and talking to one another, waiting for your, your turn at the toilet. And it would rain in the summer, Puddles were turned to ponds, we'd swim in it together. It was a lot of fun. And every summer, I remember it was time to go back to Kuwait end of summer. I would grab my parents' feet and say, I don't want to go back. I'd cry and cry. A few years later, I think I was like eight, nine, can't remember, maybe 10. Um, the Gulf War hit Kuwait. Security had lapsed. No cell phones, no internet. Go down the building with my dad and I experienced a great marvel like the power of people in creating big impact when they get together unified by a singular purpose. Mm -hmm. And in 2023, what happens is you see how bad news spreads, right? Like yeah. anytime there's bad news, we gossip and gossip and it spreads and it expands and it perpetuates. 
But back then, life was simpler. There was no social. And there's no bigger uncertainty and risk and fear and bad news than a war hitting a country. Mm. But no one was discussing that. Everyone in the building at the time were thinking of solutions. I'll guard the building from this time to the other time. Somebody else is like, I'll watch you. Someone else is like, I'll organize food supplies. Someone else is like, if you have displaced family members, I have extra room. My wife and kids are in, in back in India. So I'll, I'll create it, create some room. Someone else is like, oh, I know the folks at the school. There's no school. Maybe we can organize some shelter. So every building became the sub-community that communicated with the next building and the next building. Word of mouth spread. They coordinated with embassies that coordinated with governments and evacuated people to safety. They made a movie on this, Bollywood movie called Airlift on this. Airlift, yeah. Uh, Airlift was not explaining the whole extent of it, but they did great justice to the way things came about. It was, it was exactly what I had experienced. And now I, I realize a couple of things there that shaped my life, right? Like in my childhood, one is the power of community. Gulf War refugee prior to that, you know, spending my summers amongst people in the slums of Mumbai. The other thing I recognized was the entrepreneurial spirit. And at the time, I didn't think of it that way. But, you know, a lot of what you are is part nature and part nurture. And I say you become more of your nurture than nature. And so my nurture was all community. Right. And then I experienced also this entrepreneurial spirit, which in 2023, it's all about making money. But what is entrepreneurial spirit? It's about taking an idea, a small, obscure idea, and turn it into execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty and ambiguity. No bigger risk and uncertainty than the Gulf War, right? Like then yeah. dealing with a war-torn country. Fast forward a few years from there, my parents immigrated to Canada. Better prospects, more stability. As you know, you can't get a citizenship in Kuwait. As life progressed, my, my parents were like, hey, our kids are getting older. Maybe, you know, we don't want to send them back to India to study because they weren't mm -hmm. like, you know, universities would be difficult in Kuwait. I mean, they didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. And so we said, okay, let's immigrate to Canada for more stability, better prospects. And so we moved to Canada got into engineering, graduated engineering, and I was craving this risk and uncertainty and companionship. I didn't want to go and do like a job programming. Right. And, uh, and so I started asking around, hey, what's the best skill I can learn if I want to be a business person? Nobody used the term entrepreneurship or startup in 2005, right. six. It was, it was like business person, right? Businessman. So I said, if I wanted to be in business, what do I learn? And they would say, communication is everything. Your communication sucks. You need to learn to speak better. And, you know, I, I truly believe one thing I knew about myself. I was self-aware that I wasn't self-motivated. Okay. So let's define what self-motivation is. Self-motivation is not, I have the perfect conditions in the world and I go and do something. Like, ah, oh, you have a driver, you have somebody to hold your water bottle, so you go to the gym. That's mm. not self-motivation. Self-motivation is you can't sleep, you're injured, you're hurt, you still wake up and you go and go to the gym. Mm. Or, you, or you don't have the drive 
your foggy something something personal happened but you still show up to complete the task because you promised a deadline self motivation is showing up no matter how many times you've been punched in the face and i i didn't know i was self motivated waited enough that if i went and learned public speaking or communication that i would have persevered i had a you know as as indian kids my mom never worked she gave up her career to stay at home to raise me right. and um i i i would say in many ways you know my mom gave into although they weren't wealthy you know they coddled me right mm. so yeah i went for guitar classes and i went for karate classes and everything i went for every time i complained and complained and complained my mom didn't say no you have to do it she's like okay if you if you don't want to do it it's fine so mm. i knew that like you know i i wasn't self motivated in the sense i i would jump from thing to thing mm. so i said but i want to go into business right mm -hmm. and and so i had to learn communication so i started applying for sales jobs because i uh, i did understand that if you're not self motivated how do you learn something the best way to learn something if you suck at it is to put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over and over and over again right so i said if i want to improve sales if i want to improve communication the best job that forces me to do it day in day out is sales so mm. i started applying to sales jobs nobody would give me a sales job luck would have it i got a job cold calling for a startup Oh, so it like okay. so I get a job cold calling for a startup. The first call I practice four hours. The decision maker comes on the phone. I hang up. Everyone's laughing. They're like, practice four hours. What the hell? But I didn't stop. Right, I kept cold calling, cold calling, cold calling. I got better at it. Then over time, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was in medical school in New Jersey. So right. I wanted to move there. I wanted to be with her. So I started applying to jobs there. Because I have this startup cold calling experience, I was able to get a job in sales at another startup in New Jersey. Okay. And I get this US, uh, Canada had a TN free trade visa. So I, I go there on a visa. And when I land up at this startup, I realize they don't have a repeatable, scalable process or product or sales or marketing or nothing. So right. now I got to talk to customers and figure out what their needs are. And this is not talking to customers over the phone, they're selling large enterprise deals like quarter million and up, uh, 100,000 and up. So Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, big brands. So you got to walk their floor. Three months after I joined, the chief operating officer was managing all of this left. So I'm tagging along more experienced salespeople trying to figure out what are the requirements, really? What are, what are the pains they're facing? What are the aspirations? Then writing them into product requirements, wireframing, which I knew from engineering, software engineering, you learn wireframing and and requirements. Right. But then, but then now I also have to build a marketing website and collateral. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell did I get myself into? I don't know any of this. Hmm. Now I think a lot of kids today may have quit. Yeah. I didn't have the option. My desire to be with my girlfriend was a lot higher than the than the pain I was going through there. So I said, I'll stick it out. I started learning, researching. All the content at the time I would find about marketing and sales was coming from HubSpot. They had this inbound marketing community. Right. So I joined that community. I watched a lot of videos, read a lot of blog posts and started implementing it. I still remember Gary Vaynerchuk had a 
video on their own video creation or video oh. marketing as the future for business. And, you know, he was a chubby young guy. Oh. And, and today he's Gary V because he never stopped. He believed so much in video uh, that as the future that he's, he's been creating videos since 2004 or five. Right. Oh, and so that journey after that company, my next job was in was running sales and marketing for another startup. So if you see this progression, right, I think I look back at my learnings in my journey, your nurture is very important. And your nurture is comprised of the environment you're exposed to mm-hmm. and, the com- and the companions you surround yourself with. A lot of the times we're asked or we're told that, hey, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Right. Or it's not the journey, it's the destination. It's neither. It's neither the destination nor the journey. It's the companions that matter the most. You could be on a crappy journey on the way to hell, but great companions make it memorable. As we were leaving Kuwait, going through Baghdad and Jordan in this refugee bus, the people around the bus were laughing and singing and playing the guitar or singing Bollywood songs. Mm. Our currency was invalid. Not sure you're going to live or die. God knows what's going to happen, but you're happy. You're singing. Yeah. The companions, right? The right companion. You could be, I mean, you could be in Paris having champagne with caviar surrounded by toxic people and you'd want to leave. Yeah. Or you're like me swimming in the pond puddles of the slums of Mumbai and not want to leave, right? It's the companions that matter uh, the most. And and so I realized this uh, as an important life lesson that, you know, also you become the average of the five people you surround yourself with. I right. was lucky, I was lucky to work for a startup founder in cold calling that led me to working in sales for another startup founder that led me to run sales and marketing for another startup. And when I hit my ceiling and my best friend from university called me to do a startup, I'm like, I'm already like making nothing working for a startup. Uh, my wife had uh, got a fellowship at Stanford in San Francisco and we were going to leave the East Coast. So I'm like, I'm going to be out of a job soon because remote was a thing in 2011 or so. Okay. So I'm like, let's do this thing, right? right? If I hadn't, think about it. If I hadn't worked for startup founders, I wouldn't have been exposed to an environment where I'm wearing multiple hats Yeah. and I'm executing on pace. I'd be very siloed working for a large company, executing on plan, not on pace. Yeah. When you execute on pace, the plan keeps changing. Everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face kind of thing. Yeah. And so executing on pace versus plan and course correcting and pivoting along the way because you don't have it figured out. Basically, I was part of creating the playbooks. When I was cold calling, I was creating the playbook for cold calling because it was a small company. When I was you know, doing sales and marketing there, I was creating the playbooks because they weren't like, you know, they didn't have the playbook for marketing. And then when I moved to another startup again, I was creating the playbooks. And so that journey, one working alongside other founders made me desire to go in that direction all the more. And the experience of creating the playbooks was also invaluable. So as I reflect back, you know, if you look at the nurture was community and people, the companions Mm. you surround yourself matter the most. And the appetite for risk and uncertainty as, you know, dealing with the whole experience of the Gulf War, where I was a young kid threw on a bandana when like, you know, Rambo was very famous. 
yeah. and, and pretending like I'm rescuing Kuwait. And no adult made me feel like I was insignificant. They let me help, right? Yeah. And so, so those things actually were foundational to me. And as, if I had to encapsulate some of that, right, it would be, one, the people matter the most. If you want to be something someday, right. surround yourself by those people. Two, all success boils down to three things. Communication. Okay. Creation and consistency. Mm. Communication is everything from convincing your spouse to early employees, to customers, even evangelizing people so they are energized is communication. The next Great. is creation. I told you like I was responsible for creating the playbooks, creating, creating, but from content creation to creating playbooks to creating products, we're in the business of creating. Right. We create value, the word is create. So the next is creation. But you may be the best communicator and the best creator, but if you can't do it consistently, you will never succeed, right? right. Yeah. If if like Shah Rukh Khan or, you know, Mr. Beast, they stopped when in the early days when they were not seeing any traction, they wouldn't be what they are today. They wouldn't be iconic legends. And so that was formative to my journey, led me to boast, which we bootstrapped when cold calling wasn't working we chanced into building a community. We bootstrapped the company uh, to, to 10 million ARR with the power of community. We met our investors who bought half the company, growth equity fund, also through the community. They literally came to a community event wow. and, and loved what we did and wrote us a term sheet and bought half the company. And it's funny because it happened in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, okay. And I was joking with my wife for years that, oh, I'm going to retire at 40, retire at 40. And it was a pandemic. And weeks before, she's like, stop this joke, right? Like, it's over. You're turning 40 in, in three months. And yeah. I kid you not, man, there's this power of manifestation or law of attraction. The wire hit my bank account the week of my 40th birthday. <laughs> oh, oh. It was goosebumps for my for my family because... I would say it as a joke for so long, all through our marriage, I would say it. Um, and, and so when we when I transitioned out of the day-to-day -day of the company, I felt lost and clueless because we built this community-led company. And actually, for the first time in my life, I expressed I experienced depression. I hit rock bottom. Right. I went crazy. I started acting weird, overeating, traveling all over the place. I felt lost. And then what eventually brought me to good health was a fitness community. Mm -hmm. And so as I started to reflect back, I'm like, why did this happen? All my life, I had no money. And I was happy. The day I got money, I ended up depressed. For almost a year, I battled this. Until my wife had to jolt me and it's like, listen, if you don't change, you know, something will happen to you and your kids will suffer. Right. And so I, as I reflected, I realized all that time I was surrounded by community. When I took the money and I left the data of the company, as somebody whose DNA has been community felt he lost his tribe and I went crazy. And I was meaning traveling from place to place to place to place in my insanity to, you know, gather my friends and, and I think things came to a head when I was in Romania. Mm. I was speaking at a conference and then there was a conference after retreat. 
for speakers. And we're now three and a half hours from Bucharest, two in the morning. I'm frantically calling for cars. They're like, I don't know why you need a car. Nobody's going to come at this hour. So I called the Uber and, you know, Uber searching, searching, finding your car. They're like, you're not going to get anything. It's like three and a half hours from the Bucharest airport. Who's going to come here in this wilderness? Nonetheless, it kept searching. And then finally, like 20 minutes later, it goes, Titting, somebody's on the way. They're like, guaranteed nobody's going to come. Person yeah. shows up half an hour later. I tell them, can you wait two minutes? I run up to the room, pack my bags, come down. I'm like, book a flight to Costa Rica. I tell everyone, guys, I'm leaving to Costa Rica. They're like, where did that come from? I said, a few of my friends are in Costa Rica and they were forcing me to come. So I, I'm just going to leave. That's how crazy I became. I felt like I was going to lose all my community and I had to go from place to place to find them. Mm. Right? And then when my wife said that to me, like, you're not going to get another chance if if your health goes south and yeah. it could be bad. I mean, she's a physician. Um, I hadn't spent any time with the kids chasing business. And so the fitness community brought me to good health and sanity, moved to Dubai, changed my environment a bit. And I came into a lot of free time and I said, hey, um, what topic do I want to write a book on? And community made the most sense because, you know, loneliness is the number one killer in America. Yeah. UK. There are UK as well. I, I don't yeah. know about UK, but loneliness, number one killer. All our life is designed to chase, chase, chase. Enough is never enough. It's a moving goalpost because bigger, more, 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 right? What you don't realize is in this chase, we don't write down in the chase for money. We don't write down why are we doing it? Money is only good if it buys something, not a thing, but it, it buys a thing that brings you joy, whatever that is, right? right. It, it could be experiences. It could be, I want to retire. I want to do nothing for all my life in Bali. I want to sit and write a book, whatever your jam is. Right. Money should fund your jam that brings you joy. Otherwise, the chase for money is futile and it's not going to bring you any joy. And so you'll just keep chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. Uh, and and which is true for a lot of people, right? So I changed the environment to experience, hey, is there a world where people think about work and life different? Mm. And and it had to be a metropolitan city like New York or San Francisco or one of the US, Toronto. Right. At the same time, it had to have a community, homey vibe that was safe. And so Dubai worked out well because it was sort of Miami meets Singapore. Or yeah. Miami meets Mumbai on steroids. Um, and so as I came came into this free time now, I I decided to write the book um on, on community and I had to research. I researched a lot of communities. I had talked to a thousand people, rewatched all our community content, right? Read about these blue zones as well, where five places around the world where people functionally live until they're hundred, and functionally right. is more important. Yeah. Um, longevity makes no sense if you're not functional. And and I think four or five out of their nine traits have to do with social and belonging and communal activity. And so I said, man, there's something here. And I started collating this information. I found something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually went on to become a global enduring phenomena from Christ to CrossFit, Every yeah. obscure idea that became a global enduring phenomena have four stages in common. 
And so I started distilling those four stages into 13 rules. And those four stages are people listen to you or buy your product. You have an audience. Right. You bring that audience together to interact with one another. Now it's two-way communication. It becomes a community. When the community comes together to create impact towards a greater purpose that's beyond your product or profit, it becomes a movement. Okay. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. So audience, community, movement, religion. And you look at it today, a lot of podcasters, a lot of influencers, they have audiences. If they stop, the audience is gone. Yeah. How do you turn that into a cult-like phenomena? Community sits at the center of it. You need to build a community to get there. And so it was a very interesting exercise as I looked at all these brands and the biggest brands that endured over time, irrespective of the technological shift, irrespective of the disruptor, the biggest brands that endured over time had community at its core. Right, right. So, no, I, I think the lot of interesting things we've, we've talked about, but uh, especially when it comes to a community, like you, you started with 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 Boost, but how did you acquire those customers uh, in the in the early days? You know, what 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 tactics worked for you? Was it, uh, you, you know, cold calling? Like, how would you say you get your first ten to hundred customers? Definitely. So, you know, what's funny is when we started Boost. We're offering this very interesting service, right? We're helping companies get funding from the government for product development. That's how it started. Okay. Hundreds of billions of dollars given in R&D tax credits and innovation funding by governments, especially in the Commonwealth. Um, and it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money. My mm. co-founder was doing this manually for a big four accounting firm. So he had the, all the inside knowledge. And so when we started the company 2012, we said, we'll cold call. That's what I knew, right? Yeah. Although I had the DNA of community, I said, cold call, that's, that's what you know. And so when you cold call, you're going to cold call stable businesses, right? So we started calling manufacturing, oil and gas, construction companies. Man, nobody would like talk to us. So hard, email, cold call, it was very difficult to get through. Okay. And even if you get through, you're saying, hey, give me your research and development data and your finance data, and I'll give you money. And it's good money because there's no interest. You don't have to give up equity. Okay. They either think it's a scam or they're like, oh, we do it with our big accounting firm. So we started to get dejected. So we're like, okay, the next step, let's go to some events from, from oil and gas, construction, manufacturing. Let's just storm these events. Right. And so as we stormed these events, what we found is that we just couldn't relate. We couldn't resonate. Think about it, right? We're two young guys. It looks like we put on like suit jackets on top of our hoodies. And they look like they belong to the cigar club, right? Like really like uptight, like, you know. And so we couldn't resonate. We couldn't like just couldn't find that connection. It feel, felt very forced. Right. We weren't part of the crew. Dejected, we started going to all the startup events. Okay. And we felt an instant connection. We became friends with them, started eating, drinking, partying together, chilling together on the weekends. Because, I mean, we're founders. We have nothing other to do than our business. They're founders. They have nothing other to do than their business. We participated in hackathons together. 
man, we had a great camaraderie and we felt like this is our tribe. Yeah. Now, you know, when you're in the weeds of it, it doesn't feel like a framework. Okay. It feels like you're throwing spaghetti on the wall. Yeah. When you look, when you had success and you look back, you're like, oh, that was a profound framework. Now I can teach the world, right? But literally, when you're in there, it's spaghetti on the wall. Yeah. So the story I'm going to share is like, we're in it and we're throwing spaghetti on the wall. Once I finish the story, I'll walk through what were the frameworks that came out of it. So yeah. it's like spaghetti on the wall, but we're having a great conversation. We're enjoying, we're having fun. Now, as we got to go to all these startup events and meet founders, we understood them so well. We understood like, you know, where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. We understand their problems and their goals. We understood their aspirations. Like, what are they trying to do, right? Everyone wants to get somewhere. And what stands in the way? And one thing we realized, you know, very quickly after going to like maybe half a dozen events in a few weeks, is there something very interesting by, with these events? These events are all organized by event organizers who want to put more butts in seats. They want yeah. to fill the room. But the content is not helpful for founders because it is like high-level inspirational talks from very like CEOs who are so out there. If you're at zero or one, uh, somebody who's at 50 million or 100 million cannot like relate with me. Yeah, yeah. I need somebody who's hit five or 10, right? So these very high level inspirational CEO platitudes that weren't serving me. So as I talked to more and more people, that word kept coming out. And we said, oh, there's this, this one nugget here. The other thing, the local media wouldn't cover startups. In fact, even the service providers, no one would support them. They would joke with us saying, ah, you're never going to, get anywhere because these startups will never pay you and you'll go belly up eventually. And I'm like, we're like, you won't work with people like us and your customers also won't work with people like us. So we're left to serve our own. Right. And, and so we did two things. We said, you know what? Having been folks who have worked in and around startups, we can host events. Right. All meetups. We didn't have the money. We had a co-working space that would give us a meetups room for free. And okay. pizza was $9.99 to serve like 10, 15 people. Okay. Or something like that. Cheap. So we started emailing like, hey, Rohit, uh, you know, Michael is the founder of this company that does 5 million in revenue. He's going to talk about how they got their first 100 customers tactically. Like okay. how they set up list, how they did email sequences, how they ran ads, whatever. Um, there's going to be some pizza free to join at our co-working space. 10 people showed up. Now, okay. the funny thing is I talked about consistency, right? Like it's a secret ingredient to big outcomes. Consistency on small actions is what leads to big outcomes. If you look at the Chandrayaan, right? The, the yeah. India's landing on the moon. Sure. They didn't do some big bang up thing. They made small changes consistently over time. Yeah. And got them at a lower cost than everyone else out there. They didn't just go and just do some groundbreaking thing. It was small, consistent actions over time. True. So we kept doing these small meetups. The first meetup, 10% showed up, 10 people showed up. We kept hosting small, 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 small meetups, events, 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 events. One day, 200 people showed up at the co-working space and they're like, guys, you can't really do this anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you're hijacking all the aisles and everything in the co-working space. You got to get out of here. 
um, can do this. And that eventually evolved into the Traction community and the Traction conference. And today, over 100,000 subscribers. And, and you know, we've had the CEO of Uber come to our meetups and Twilio and Zoho and Atlassian and all these big names, right? Nonetheless, its roots were in those small, small, small meetups. Now, the second thing we did was we reached out to the local newspaper and said, hey, you're not covering the startups. Right. Can you give us a column and we'll cover them? They're like, not interested, not a priority, right? So I said, oh, how do I engineer social proof now? And all my life actually is about engineering social proof. You find some smaller social proof and leverage that to get to the next level and next level. Basically leverage the brand rub. Right. Nobody knows you leverage the brand rub of somebody with a little social proof and just level up. Keep brand rub plus level up. Mm, interesting. Oh, so... I reached out to a second tier blog and I said, Hey, we're doing events in this region. Could I write about it, about the startups here on your blog? They're like, yeah, sure. If somebody is not staffed and small blog, regional media run by one, two people, they'll take your content. Right. But the newspaper won't. So I blogged, covered a few startups, shared it. They socialized it so much. It got so many tweets back then. LinkedIn wasn't popular for content sharing. It was more like Facebook and Twitter. Right. Inside TikTok wasn't so big for business. And it got shared so much. I took that and I hit up the newspaper editor. And I'm like, hey, see how much traffic this this has gone. So many retweets. Mm. The newspaper is dying for the next generation. They're not using newspapers. Sure. I think by by giving me a column, you tap into a younger audience that is tech savvy. And and that is your future. So he said, I'll give you one blog. And see how it does. Now, I have this unwritten rule. Unless you're doing something illegal, right. never never ask for permission. Always beg for forgiveness. Okay. Because, you know, especially us having Indian descent, when you ask for permission, you just life goes dealing with the system. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, you can't wait, right? Speed is the currency of high growth startups. True. So he gave me one blog. It wasn't a column. It was a blog. I decided to call that blog startup of the week. Like, and I called it startup of the week because it's from on the newspaper. So it'll give this impression that the newspaper is starting like a weekly award recognition for startups. Mm -hmm. And I covered a startup. Now that went even more viral than the first post. And, And now then the editor calls me and I'm freaking out here because I'm like, he gave me one blog post. He hasn't given me a column. Now he's going to tell me, why did you write startup of the week? Nonetheless, I, I text him back, call him, and he's like, hey, man, this has done well. If you commit to writing it every week, I'll make it a print column. Okay. Bingo. So he gives, he turns it into a print column. Print column does four things. One, two guys who nobody knew got instant credibility from the local newspaper. Right. Two, our blog, our website was new with no SEO juice. We started getting a weekly backlink from the highest domain authority website in the country, which is a newspaper, Post Media. Three, uh, the the every Monday now, entrepreneurs started going to the newsstand and buying those newspapers and taking photos. And think about it. In 2023, also, so many blogs. But once you're in the newspaper, you're more legit, right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a more exclusive form of media. And so. four, I put a survey link in there saying a form in there saying if you want to be featured in the column fill out this form and all those emails would come to me 
So now this one-two combo would happen. People will apply to be on the newspaper uh, startup of the week. We would invite them to the meetup. Yeah. Oh, okay. so, social proof from the speakers. We'd get to meet them and hang around with them in person. And then, you know, more connections. And so through that, we got early customers, but more importantly, we built partnerships with people. We built social proof and we started getting a lot of referrals. And then as we hired salespeople, they were all like community people. Like in the sense, they weren't like salespeople who were saying, buy my stuff. Or they were going and helping people in the community, uh, hosting events, going to events, and trying to understand people and uh, build relationships, right? Like in that whole community model. So now let's walk back to this story. But but essentially, this took us to a few million, this whole strategy as we scaled from one region to the other to the other, because we took the implemented the same strategy in San Francisco, we implemented the same strategy in Vancouver, in Toronto. So that helped us grow, grow to several million in revenue. So now, what is the framework? And And I'll stop when we get to the pandemic, but it worked till the pandemic. So what is the framework here? Is framework one is I want to start something, a community or a right. product. I don't know who I'm going to target. How do you figure out who you're going to target? Number one, there's four things to figure out who you're going to target. Do I have a passion for this market, this audience? Can I vibe with them? Do I want to keep creating for this audience? Do I love creating for this audience? You know why that is important? Is because building a company is a long slog. Building a community-led business is even a longer slog. Yeah. It's a it's a labor of love. It's a marathon of the heart and mind. If you hate your customers, you cannot create. If you hate your audience, you cannot create for them sustainably. Right. The second thing is it is a is it a small but growing niche? Saturated niches make it difficult to find white spaces where you can go and find value. A small niche but growing is 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 good. At least for me, it works. The third is, do they have the propensity to pay? Will they pay you someday? And fourth is ease of access. Now you see, if we had a big market like oil and gas manufacturing, we we would want to go after them, but we couldn't vibe with them. So it's like, yeah. ah, it would be a dread to create for these people. But most importantly, we didn't have ease of access, man. You may love the market. And they may be a growing niche and they may want to pay you all the money in the world. But if you can't access them, you're done, right? Yeah. So you gotta, the ease of access is very important. The second thing is once you've, once you've landed on this target market, spend time with them. Understand where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. Talk to them. Go to their events. Hang out with them. Emulate them. You want to understand their goals and problems. But goals and problems can be short-lived. You want to understand the aspirations, which is what is the long term, where they want to get to eventually, because that yeah. becomes your forever. And then what stands in their way. And once you understand that, then draw their circle of influence. Who do they fund? Meaning what are the service providers they pay to? So those okay. are the people you can partner with, bring on as sponsors for your community. Who do they follow? So you can invite these people to speak or do events or as VIP guests. And where do they frequent? Meaning what platforms they are prevalent on so you can distribute their, what magazines, blogs they read so you can invite reporters from there to maybe moderate sessions. So at our conferences now, I don't moderate any session. It's like uh -huh. all TechCrunch, it's Forbes. We invite reporters from there because the vibe we want is when our ideal customer, which is the founder of a growing company, walks in, 
They meet other founders like themselves. They meet other like some more experienced founders who they follow and respect. They meet service providers they actually love and buy tools from. And they meet journalists they want to be covered by. So it feels like they're trapped, right? That's that's how we started. And and but that was this, the the now second framework. Right. Or or the third framework, right? So the first one is the four. You have the passion, you have the small growing niche, which is the market side propensity ease of access. Then it's about understanding your customers, problems, goals, and aspirations and what stands in their way. And then it's about understanding their circle of influence. Once you have that, then you figure out what kind of community you want to build. You can build one of three kinds of communities. One is a community of practice, which is teaching people about a specific field. Okay. How do you get better at it? Better marketers, better entrepreneurs, better um, product people. The second one is a community of product, which is all about educating people on your product, building product evangelists, building product collaborators, right? Making people successful on your product. And the third one is a community of play, which is bringing people together to have fun, like your Nike running club, right. the Harley Davidson club. Bikers Club, right? The Hugs, Hugs Group. If you don't have a product that is a product market fit, or you don't have a product that is used very, very frequently, then focus on building a community of practice or a community of play. If nobody's in and out of your product frequently, where it's memorable, the use is like there in their purview, like a notion, in many senses, even hardly, right? Yeah. Um, can be is a mix of community of product and a community of play. But if people are not using the product day in, day out, or you don't have product market fit, or you have no customers, how can you create a community of product? You can't. People will yeah. feel like you're trying to sell them something. So you created a community of practice or community of play. For us, we created a community of practice because Boast was early days. We didn't really have very many customers. We needed to sort of in many ways evangelize the market. And so we said, what is the aspiration of an innovator? They want to create impact. They want to get traction. So the community became traction. Mm. Um, and it became a community of practice. And and so I'll I'll stop there. But one thing I'll tell you is, and I probably didn't talk about this. I didn't, I didn't. But before you embark on building a community-led business, you got to ask yourself and your founders if you guys have the DNA of giving. Building a community-led business is about falling in love with your customer and helping them become successful beyond your product or service. It's about moving towards a purpose that's greater than your product or profit. And so it's very, very important to align that do I get joy from giving? Because it's a long, it takes a long time, right? Till today, I get asked by people like, oh, how do I, you know, I want to build a community. Do I start a Facebook group or Slack group? And when can I make money? Yeah. And I tell them like, if you want to make immediate money, don't do community, do direct response stuff. Hire a sales team, you know, run ads, whatever it is, do direct response stuff. Don't build a community. If you want to, genuinely help people and add value and draw joy from them. You want to spend time with them, build a community because it's a great one, two combination, right? You have your direct response, but it's warmed by the community. And in many ways we use that at Boast is like the community is warming up. So when you hit the direct response, 
they you are top of mind, right? Mm-hmm. They know you, kind of thing. And and that DNA of giving is is very important because if you don't, you'll start stop and you'll do activities you won't sustain. Mm-hmm. Got it. Interesting. You 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 mentioned about uh, having uh, a sense of giving back. uh and only then you you know you should build a community but but do you think for for companies they should be at a certain level of revenue for example like 10 million dollars or something uh, and only then they should look at community or do you think no like we were zero in revenue we had no a single customer so and we built a community so you know it all depends right you're bringing people together and it doesn't have to be one big conference man think about it right when you do one big conference and again now this is another sort of in the moment we're throwing spaghetti on the wall looking back yeah. it's a great framework so i'll tell you so doing these events got us to 2020 and about 30 35000 email subscribers okay and on average online event, on on average we'd get like 1000 or so people come to our conferences and okay. on online great engagement now 2020 rolls around we have a conference in august and it's canceled in march we had to cancel it or april i freak yeah. out because so far all our marketing warm up has been through community activity events solo events partnered events and and so we now got to take it online and so we say if we take it online we have to do this two day virtual summit which everyone's doing and i didn't yeah. want to do it i genuinely didn't want to do it i was scared i'm like things are going to fail things are going to break any number of things it's just going to be a headache to manage and we didn't have the resources i mean we had no marketing team when we got to 10 million right and so i reached out to all the speakers and said hey we're thinking of doing a live weekly webinar live i okay. interview you you do a presentation the audience interacts with you are you in they all said they're in and it started as one a week and very quickly it became two a week two live every tuesday thursday at 11 am and the audience would join and interact you know right now we're a podcast but if the audience was live then it becomes a two way communication they interact with one another and there's camaraderie there hmm. and i kid you not man the consistency on doing that after the two years grew the audience from 30000 to like 35 to to like I think we're like almost 120 right now. So what that tells you is consistency on small actions creates big outcomes over time. Because what that did was rather than saying buy this conference, buy this conference virtual conference ticket, I'm saying hey, today talk to Rohit and Rohit is going to talk about you know how he built help build Oyo and tomorrow talk about Lloyd and Lloyd's going to give you the playbook for community building and day after tomorrow talk to john or sari or mary and mary is going to talk about how to raise 1 million dollars in funding from i don't know crowdfunding or like angel investors or spacs or whatever like very specific topics right and so yeah. what happens is now every message to them that you send is adding a new piece of value and there's a key learning here it's like nearial's hook framework how do you create habit forming products yeah. is you have a trigger like an email external trigger let's say people take an action they get a variable reward and then they make an investment to come to the event like you know or they they come to the event or sign up to your newsletter if the reward is fixed 
then it's a you know, they know what to expect and they may check out right they're like ah you know what it's the same old i don't want it but if the reward is variable then the next time you send the email they want to click they're like oh what do i get right now it's like opening the kinder egg surprise right yeah it's this dopamine every time it's different if it's the same thing you don't want to buy those things you just eat chocolate why would you buy the egg surprise you mm -hmm. buy it because it's a different dopamine hit every time you open it and so when you do like these two live events with like webinars with different topics every time you hit them up it's like a different dopamine you're sharing something else and they join uh, and they can join live and interact the live was key and and so that helped grow the audience and then <laughs> one day during the pandemic we did an in-person event when there was an opening and we met yeah. our investors through there who ended up build like buying sort of half the company interesting you know you, you mentioned about 2020 but do you think in the last three years um has the you know had the community building affected because of you know the covid uh the online e virtual events and then you know people again going back to uh in-person events you know, you know what, what were some, some of the challenges you, you would have faced uh or, or and and you still believe that you know in person events or virtual events is the right way to build community you know i think you need a combination of two okay okay i feel like right now we're sound and sight if we were in person we'd be taste touch and smell anytime you incorporate more than two senses you start to bring stronger connections look at it with yourself in your life your yeah. strongest bonds are with people who you spend some time with in person, right? Sure. Right or wrong? Yeah, yeah. Right? And so you need to incorporate that. I think you need a hybrid approach. And especially in COVID, COVID has caused virtual fatigue, Zoom fatigue. So people are yearning to meet in person, bring people together. In I'm a big believer of in-person events and experiences. Online is good to consume, right? And to stay informed. In-person is a true 360 experience where you energize. And when people are energized, man, they you can really, really build strong connections with them. Interesting. And, uh, you know, in, in your book, you mentioned about um, Harley Davidson, Nike, CrossFit, HubSpot. Who do you think is the, is the best community builder? You know, they all have very interesting ways of doing things, right? And, um, you know, I mean, I have a notion doc that goes with the workbook on from grassroots to greatness.com that that'll be on from grassroots to greatness.com forward slash workbook. And we'll have some of these case studies, but I put them on my LinkedIn a lot. Lloyd Lobo, double L O Y E D Lobo on my LinkedIn yeah. uh, every so often. I think it's all depends on what you can and can't execute, right? It's, it's about putting Picking your ideal customer, learning about them, understanding them, and doing one or two things really well. Being an inch wide and a mile deep, then being a mile wide and doing a little bit, little bit of everything and not doing great in anything. I think that is really, really more important. So what happens is I get asked a lot, oh, do I start a Facebook group? Do I start a Slack group? When can I monetize? And I tell them, asking to start with a Facebook or WhatsApp group or Slack group is like saying, I want to build a church or a temple, but I actually don't know what religion is going to practice there. 
So should you start with the customer first, right? Start with understanding your audience. And so in terms of these groups, um, you know, I think depending on your audience, the ones I'd like a lot, which started as a niche focus group, I like the HubSpot community a lot. I like the Saster community a lot. I like uh, Notions community a lot. I like Atlassian's community a lot. So I've given you now two communities of practice and two communities of product, right? But that doesn't mean now you you don't take examples outside of the tech, right? So for example, um, for for example, you got uh, CrossFit's community. Yeah. It's phenomenal. CrossFit's community. Think about what CrossFit did, right? They changed the way um, business is done. Yeah. They unleash the power of rituals. CrossFit has this workout of the day where members around the world look forward to every single day. It makes them push harder, right? And practicing this ritual together is a guaranteed way for your community to build authentic connections. And rituals are nothing new. It's religious groups have been practicing practicing it for a while, right? And it helps build strong connections. They sell outcomes, not products, right? Customers want outcomes. They don't want products. Yeah. They want to be better you know, they go to the gym to get fit, not to, you know, just hang out and pay a membership. Mm. They buy marketing automation because they want more leads, right? So that's mm. that's what you want to focus on. Then it's, you know, one of the things is giving your community a home, like CrossFit's gym is called a box. But if your people are meeting together, then give them a place where they can congregate a little bit frequently, whether it's a chat group or Slack group. The world doesn't need the nth chat group so figure out how your people are used to communicating and where they're prevalent and give them that as a medium versus creating a medium that they have to learn all on their own right so you can you can learn basics of of the principles from every community they have a lot to offer but a lot of them structure around how do I create an audience by adding value? How do I bring that audience together to connect with one another? Then how do I bring that community around a greater purpose to create impact? And then what are some rituals that will sustain over time that will turn this into a cult-like brand? A lot of, lot of the communities fall into, or rather companies fall into one of those buckets in terms of how they do things, right? right. But like see, Notion is another great example. 30 million users, 10 billion valuation, right? So they empower their community to create. Yeah. See, if, if a loyal user makes a TikTok video, it'll far outshine 10 videos produced by your company. In 2023, people are consuming more content than people, than brands. Yeah. So, so having community leaders and fans Spread your message is is key. So what TikTok did was they set up a Notion creator challenge and people got paid to make a video about Notion. The more viral it got, the bigger the bucks. And that started creating this loop, right? Creation is very, very important. It forced people to create and create and create around Notion. They foster connections without exerting control. They saw like early users were discussing 
their love for the product, right, in, in online communities. And they wanted to nurture it, so they started allowing funding for user-organized events. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. And and then they reward community contributions, right? They give perks, swag, early access to features, priority support, um, free space, uh, pre sort of team workspaces for community events or community organization, right? So when you when you when you see all of this, you realize that every community has like a one percent super fans and nine percent casual contributors. And ninety percent lurkers. Lurkers, yeah. Your job, your job is to elevate the super fans and treat them like leaders. They should feel like, you know, like look at any political party too, right? The super fans should be like, you know, you should elevate them to leader status. And if you elevate your super fans to to leader status, then your casual contributors will be elevated to super fans, hmm. and they'll try to pull each other forward right and spread the message if you try to control the community you'll get nowhere because people will check out and they'll not want to do it mm. yeah no looks like you know this like a mini mbn you know community building i think it's a, a lot of interesting insights i'm look really looking forward to reading the book but you you mentioned that you sold half of your company and and you also talk about uh, you know growth equity uh, versus you know private equity and VC, you know what? what why should somebody take uh, growth equity? And you know when should they make a decision to you know sell half of the company, or you know when should they make the decision to you know sell the company? So you know, there's I, I truly believe there's more than one way to build a successful company. Unfortunately, like I said, fortunately, unfortunately, I only worked for venture back startups before Boast. For the most, yeah, they all failed. All of them failed. And so what happened was when we did this event during the pandemic, this growth equity firm comes to us and they said, hey, you know, who hosted this event? And I said, yeah, I did. And they would talk to me and they're like, would you love to join? We would love for you to join our venture partner network. We'll give you carry in any deals you pass us. And I say, listen, I don't have the time to do this. We have a business to run. And they asked what the business was and I explained it to them and they were shocked and they were very interested. They asked me high level revenues, which I told them. They asked him, what is the gross margin? I told them. And I said, we're doing all this with no marketing team. I think we were north of 5 million getting to 10 that year. No marketing team doing it with community-led growth. And then they expressed interest in investing and I knew my co-founder you know, is dead against taking outside investors. Basically, it's like bringing somebody else into your marriage. Yeah. My wife, on the other hand, would always say, listen, you've only worked at failed startups. If you fail again, when the company is just starting to do well after so many years of slogging, if you fail again, trying to build somebody else's zero-sum game, I want you to get a job at like Salesforce or Oracle or some standard company, some stable company because I can't keep paying the bills at home. Like she'd been paying the bills. Yeah. So I explained this to them and they're like, listen, we're not a VC. So I'm like, what are you, PE? And I had a fear of PE uh, because one of the companies I was at, they were PE backed and you know they create all these earnout structures and they look into the guts of your company. It's just, it's not a, it, it can go south. And so 
They said, no, we're growth equity. And I'm like, what the hell is that? They're like, oh, we predominantly back founders who are bootstrapped or very capital efficient with clean cap tables, not a large number of investors on there or none. And that have high gross margins, repeatable recurring business models. But more importantly, founder-led, mostly bootstrap, very capital efficient. And because of that, we tend to offer liquidity to the founders so they can de-risk in the short term and still own enough stake in the company so they can play the long game. And, and that was very interesting to me and Alex because that's great, right? You sold 52% of the company. Um, you still own close to 40% of the company. The rest is with the employees. And uh, I think that is the decision you want to make. The one thing I'll tell you this, Rohit, and this is for your audience who are founders. We often go on this journey to fundraise right. and we're misaligned on day one. The media has perpetuated this addiction to unicorn porn. In reality, the world is run by camels, horses, and donkeys. So what happened? Pandemic hit. Every yeah. company needed to go online. So they started buying software. All startups started seeing boom, right? People started buying products. Looking at this and the low interest rates in the market, all kinds of money started coming in the market. They started investing in startups at high valuations. If you didn't digitally transform in 2020 and 2021, you're not going to in 2022. The market didn't explode. It was a black swan event that sort of created an artificial need for a short term. And so when 22, 20, 22 started to roll around, um, what we saw, or rather like, you know, mid 22, what we started to see is when the interest rates went up, always interest rates follow the economy, right? They yeah. Didn't. Like uh, interest rates, uh, uh, interest rates rise, economy starts to sort of see shakiness. The markets start to crash, um, and so interest rates went up, and the projections of these companies that were growing boom boom started to fall, hmm. and valuation got slashed. Downstream result, you have a bank falling because think about it, what was happening. These companies that didn't deserve the money they raised were raising at obscene valuations and they were getting matching venture debt. Where is this going to end? And so well, the point I'm trying to make is as a founder, you never think about a few things which you should ask yourself. What is my personal definition of success? Not money. What is my personal definition of success? If I had infinite amount of money or rather forget the money, what do I want to do that brings me joy? Don't say work, ignore work. What do I do that brings me joy? Whether it's farming in Bali or, you know, I don't know, um, making homes in, in, in like, uh, I guess, South India, yeah. or if it's surfing in California. Hmm. What is it that, what brings you joy? What is your personal definition of success? How much money do you need in your bank account to do that day in, day out? Is there a version of the company you don't want to work for? That's very important. And 
how long do you see yourself running the company? Hmm. And based on that, what is the argument for or against raising money? Because when a founder and VC go into a conversation, there's automatic misalignment. Society and the startup community teaches founders to elevate their pitch to win the deal. What they don't realize is you don't go into a marriage polishing your, and I never realized this because all my life I was also doing the same thing. We all do the same thing till you yeah. realize it causes obscene misalignment, right? Um, we polish, you know, say you had to go to meet a girl, right? And that you want to eventually marry. Like, would you go and just polish things about your life so strong or so so smooth that when she finds out, she's like, you're a lie. What would she do? Leave you, right? Yeah. Or vice versa. And so, but we as a society, startup community, teach the founders to polish their pitch so much that what most founders don't know if they want to go on a journey to build a multi-billion dollar company or what it takes. So they polish and polish this pitch and they give it to VCs. And VCs then, you know, buy into that if they believe in your vision and like you as a founder. And then they push you. And then you realize somewhere midway, either I want to do it or I don't want to do it. If you don't want to do it, it's bad. So it's best to align and figure out, hey, what is my... Per Everyone says, no one asks them, like, why? No one asks themselves, why are you doing this? Yes, you want to change the world and everything. But like, don't delude yourself, right? Like you're doing this for money eventually. Just yeah. make sure the money you're doing it for is not an infinite chase of more and more and more money. It actually buys you something, which is freedom, right? Personal definition of success is what? Freedom. Freedom to do what you want, where you want, when you want, with whom you want. So make sure it's buying you that. Uh, and more importantly, understand where a VC is coming from. A VC raises money from institutional LPs and high net worth individuals. Right. Their the promise is we're going to deliver an outsized return to you. So let's stop hating on the VCs for a second. These institutions, they run large organizations and it goes to fund those organizations. It's not charity free money sitting here, right? Or like if angels, they put their money in funds, they're putting that because they want a return in X time so they can fund some project, right? Not every person funding VCs from an angel side is an ultra high net worth individual. So I think that's important to understand, nonetheless, that VCs provide the promise of an outsized return to the LPs. Right. And for them to continue playing the VC game, they got to keep delivering these outsized returns. If they don't, the LPs will just put the money in the S&P 500 or some index funds would return like on average 10% every year. Yeah. So make sure when you talk to a VC or before you go into it, you understand like, are you really in it? Because if you understood what it truly entails, you might approach different paths to success. You might bootstrap a little longer. You might go and offer a service to a customer and get paid and eventually automate that service. Like generative AI makes a lot of these things possible. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's super, super interesting. Uh, I just want to quickly want to do the top three. What's, what's your favorite business book? So, you know, 
I didn't read a lot um, growing up. It was just very hard for me. So I listened to a lot of audiobooks. My best business book, um, you know, if I had to pick one, I don't want to give you a business book that is sort of everyone might give you, but I'll give you some skills, right? Because there's a lot of business books and a lot of the old business books are all about like, you know, stories, but you can listen to podcasts to get those stories, like the inspiration. What right. I want you to understand is like skills. What will make you a better entrepreneur? In my view, communication, creation, and consistency are the best skills. So read the books that will help you build any one of those three areas. Um, I like a few books in communication. One is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, two, Influenced by Robert Cialdini. And three, Made to Stick. There are some really good books in communication. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in, in, the, in the show notes. And, uh, and of course, my, my book on From Grassroots to Greatness. <laughs> yeah. yeah so we'll, we'll we'll put that in the show notes and um you know if you could go back in in time when you started writing the book what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently you you know what's really funny is like i said right it was very hard for me growing up to read and read and write so this book was very hard and i procrastinated a lot and i realized something eventually that a book is like doing a business yeah. when you start a business at what point you're the most excited? Yeah, not, the, when you're, not when you're making the sausage, right? Right in the book is making the sausage. At the, at the beginning, you get very excited when you're creating the website and, and coming up with a name. And the book equivalent of that is coming up with the book cover and the book's name. Yeah. These were the last things I came up with. And so I dragged my feet and dragged my feet. And my, my brother is a brilliant designer. Not he doesn't design books at all. He's actually a brand architect. Um, you know, people fondly call him brandfather in the Middle East, but he's won awards at Khan. And he kept telling me, he's like, what is this? My book was called Community-Led Growth. He's like, having a book titled Community-Led Growth is like saying your book is called marketing. He's like, that's stupid. He's like, your book should stand for something, right? And you know, he encapsulated my vibe and colors really well. And he said, I didn't even commission him. I didn't want him to do the book. He went and did this on his own, right? And like he, he created the inspiration for it. And then we, our publishers, designers took it further. And 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 you'll see like every every page is like, you know, starts with full color. There's a certain vibe. And he said, I'm going to prove to you that never judge a book by its cover is a BS hoax, right? And, and it was so true because I dragged my feet for two years. And finally, when I saw the name and the design in, in this form, I got so pumped that I think the last three months, Rohit, I have been on overdrive. It's 1 a.m. here and I've been podcasting since... 8 a.m. Dubai time. I'm Dubai. I, I, I did my first in-studio interview. I did two in-studio interviews. Then I did an evening of podcasts. And then I worked during the day. And last night I was on till 2 a.m. That I, it energized me. And the years prior, I'm just dragging my feet and dragging my feet because I'm just like, you know, writing the manuscript, writing the manuscript. But when this came, it, it pumped me. Because this is the design I put to the world. I got feedback. When people give you positive feedback, then you get energized, right? See, a lot of people are not consistent. One thing is to just keep showing up and keep doing it. 
But right. what fuels consistency is positive reinforcement, is feedback. When people say, oh, this is great. You're doing great. Man, I love the cover. They're like, oh, let me put out some more. Let me put out some more. Let me put out some more, right? And right. and so that's what I would change is like, you know, I would start with the title and the, and the, and the design probably, and then I would have expedited the rest. Because then it's staring at you in the face too. Like this needs to get out. Yeah, yeah. No, totally get that. And uh, what's your favorite online tool? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Do you know, I like Notion a lot. I use also um, uh, Gmail. I live by um, as well for, um, you know, I have a list of tools and I'll, I'll put it here because um, I, think, I think it's worthwhile recommending from a community building sta- standpoint, right? Sure. So um, for like turning your webinars into evergreen, engaging two-way conversations, e-webinar is great. Yeah. Turning long-form videos into social clips, Latte Social or Video.ai or Opus Pro. Of course, Buzzsprout for podcast publishing, Descript for like, Descript or Otter for show notes and editing kind of thing and, right. um, um, and transcriptions and summarize repurposes content from audio and video into shareable social posts, newsletter platform, you know, because it's community driven, I think Substack is a great one. Um, and Notion is, mm. is phenomenal. So a bunch of tools. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the all, all, are, all are great ones. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, what, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about your book from grassroots to greatness? Definitely. So, from grassroots to greatness.com. It's for 99 cents. Buy it. Leave me a five-star review. There'll be an accompanying notion doc. This book is all in stories. And um, it's not, I, I have a very sort of step-by-step notion workbook that accompanies this. So you can get all the templates that you can download, see behind the scenes interviews and whatnot. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Lord, thank you so much for taking our time. I think uh, this was one of the best podcasts I've done. It was like, like a mini MBA in community building. Uh, I love doing it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.